Hi, this is Robert Furl, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. When you subscribe to the podcast, you get our long-form teachings. Right now, we're in the book of Acts, we're in chapter 7, and we're in the book of Revelation in chapter 17. On the podcast, you can go back and all the way and catch the first chapter of Revelation and go all the way through with us. Uh, you also get our short-form teachings. These are hot topics that are 10 to 15 minutes long, and uh, the latest one that has been released is How to Walk in the Spirit. You also get these Q&As that you can listen back to uh, when it is convenient for you. Uh, the question that we have today, the first question, comes from our last Q&A. Near the end, someone asked about what demonic faith is. Now, this comes out of the book of James, and James is dealing with faith and works in this section. Now, we know that Paul was dealing in Ephesians and Galatians and then the writer of Hebrews was as well, to people who were being legalistic, believing that you had to do a work in order to be saved. James was dealing with people who were saved, but were not wanting to do anything. They weren't following through with doing the works that God has called us to do. So we know from Ephesians that it says, we are saved by faith, the, by the grace, through grace, by faith. So, God's, God's grace that saves us. God's the one doing the saving. We receive that through faith, and it's not of works lest any man should boast. So James is dealing with it from the opposite side of the issue when he brings up this idea of demonic faith. Now look at this. This is James 2. We're going to start in verse 14 as he's dealing with the issue faith without works is dead meaning that works are the evidence of a living faith. He's not dealing with getting saved by doing works. He's dealing with the fact that when you are saved, there's going to be evidence of works in your life. Um, Paul is fighting one enemy. Uh, James is fighting another. And so it says in verse 14, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked, destitute of daily food, and you say to them, depart uh, in peace, be warm, be filled, but do not give them the things which they need for the body, what does it profit? He's just saying, what, is it, what does it help that person if you are not willing to reach out and help them? Thus also faith by itself does, uh, uh, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he's saying that the evidence that you are a real Christian and that you have faith is that you're going to be compassionate. This is the same thing Jesus said when he separated the sheep from the goats. I was naked, I was thirsty, I was hungry, I was sick, I was in prison. When you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. It's what Christians do. So then verse 18, he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And that's his point. I'll show you my faith by my works, but how are you going to show me your faith without any works? Because not everybody who says they're a Christian are. Some say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do miracles in your name? He says, away from me, I never knew you. Then he says this, this is the demonic faith section. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? So what's he, what he's saying here is that you believe that God is, is, is one. That's good. The demons believe it as well. Believing that God exists, believing that he is there, even saying I am a Christian is not enough. You have to be born again. You have to be transformed. 
you have to have the blood of Christ applied to you. And even though the demons believe, they are not saved. So demonic faith is when someone believes, but they don't trust in Christ. They've never received him as their savior. Now, the definition of faith is interesting. I think it was Christopher Hitchens who had the definition of faith of, faith is believing something that there is no evidence of. And that's not what faith is. Faith is not that. Faith is when you believe what God has said enough to be able to do what he said. That's true faith. Demonic faith is believing in God, but not doing what he said. True faith is believing in God enough to do what he said. And we get all of these examples of faith in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Faith of Abraham, the faith of Samson, um, even the faith of those who didn't receive the promises. But a couple of examples uh, gives us the idea of what faith is. I mean, all of them do really. You can go back, you can look at that whole chapter and you're gonna get a good idea of what faith is. It says, by faith the children of Israel entered into the Red Sea. Moses parted it by faith they had to enter in. Now, maybe they were a little skeptical. Maybe they were like, uh, I don't think I want to go in. Moses like parts that his scene and says, go ahead and go in. And they're like, you go in. And maybe someone in front was hesitant, but somebody behind him was confident. And he ran through and went into the Dead Sea. And once one person went, they all went. And then they traveled through it. By faith, they passed through. Now, a lack of faith would have been, I ain't going in there, the waters might crash down. So when you have faith, you trust what God has said. And faith is so powerful, it moves mountains. And the reason that a faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains is because it's not the faith moving mountains, it's you trusting in what God has said enough to do what he said. By faith, they kept the Passover, it says. So you could have one guy who is not very confident, doesn't want to kill the lamb, doesn't really believe it's going to work, and he applies the blood to the doorpost. You have a neighbor, very confident, loves his firstborn, applies the blood without any question. Both of them have enough faith for the death angel to pass over. We make a mistake when we think that confidence is what faith is. Sometimes if you don't have confidence and you say, I'm going to do what God wants anyway, that's enough faith to get the job done. You've now passed through it. So demonic faith is when you say, God said this, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to go out and do the things that God's called me to do. You believe that God exists, but you don't believe him. And demonic faith can't save you. It's trusting in Christ. It's inviting him in. It's being transformed. And once you've invited him in and once you've been transformed, then you're going to want to do what God wants you to do because that's the evidence that we are really born again. By this, we know that we know him, that we keep his commandments. We don't keep them all the time, right? Nobody does. Well, the same book that says this, by this we know that we know him, which is 1 John, that, that we keep his commandments, also says that if you say that you have no sin, you're a liar. So we know that there's a balance. And we also know 1 John tells us if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it doesn't mean we always do what he wants, but it means we want to and we do it. You do follow through. If you say, I'm a Christian, I've committed my life to Christ, but you never do the things that God wants you to do, then there's no confidence in your salvation. I, I, I'm not going to judge you and say you're not saved, but I'm going to say you don't have any confidence. And if you find yourself where you think, maybe I have demonic faith, maybe I believe in God, but it doesn't affect my life at all. I'm living for myself. Then what do I do? You invite Christ in. 
The Bible says in John 1.12, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God to those who believe in his name. And that is you receive him, you invite him in. And now you are going to be a disciple. We are sent out into the world to make disciples of all nations. That's what we're supposed to do. Um, you want to be a, you, if you're going to be a disciple, you're going to be a follower of Christ. Now you're going to follow him. That's why you do the things he said, because you're following him. And what's going to happen is you're transformed. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Everything becomes new. This is what demons don't have when they believe in the existence of God. They believe that God is one. They even tremble over it because of it, but they have never trusted in Christ. They've never been transformed. And that's what happens. Now, there are plenty of people out there who think that they're saved because they believe that God exists. I was one of them prior to coming to Christ at 14. The church I went to, which was the United Methodist Church, and I can only speak to the church I attended, taught us that if you believed God, you were saved. If you believed in God, you were saved. Meaning, if you believed God existed. And I believed God existed. But I had never invited him into my life and I'd never chosen to live for him. And when I did that, my life was transformed because God began to work inside of me. So, demonic faith, and um, thank you for the question from the end of our uh, Q&A last week on what demonic faith is. I think there's a little bit of confusion about it, but the Bible's pretty clear. Uh, demonic faith is when you believe, but you don't, you, your life doesn't change. You believe God exists, but you're not living for him. You're not a disciple. You're not a follower. Your life has not been transformed. Uh, so you want to commit your life to Christ. If you've never done that, if you think, you know what, I'm Catholic or I'm Lutheran or I'm Methodist or um, I go to Calvary Chapel, I'm okay. I don't need to invite Christ in. I don't need to live for him. Then you're not okay. You will have a rude awakening when you get into heaven and he says, away from me, I never knew you. Jesus said in John 17, three, and this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and the son whom he sent. All right. So, um, appreciate it. Good to see you guys. Uh, looks like Psychman's first one on here today. Carl, good to see you. Uh, and if you have a question, then you can write the word question down or a question mark or a cue in front of uh, your comment. Read it, reread it a couple of times. Make sure it makes sense and it's saying what you want it to say. Uh, if, I, if I can't get it, and sometimes I'm sure it's me, but if I can't get what it's saying, then I'm just going to pass on it because I, I just don't want to take a guess and um, spend a lot of time on it when it's not the question uh, that you're asking. So uh, Jari has a question about uh, the Gadareans. Uh, question, why did the demons choose pigs? Can animals still be possessed today? Why would they choose animals when animals don't sin? Thank you. Huh. Um, yeah, so it's always it's always interesting when you get a, a you know a statement like that. Animals don't sin. Um, yeah, well, yeah, I don't. I would say animals um, can be rebellious, right? They they sometimes they certainly do things that look like sin. I've had dogs that have done that. Cats certainly do it for sure. Um, so why did the the demons choose the pigs? There's nothing in the passage that tells us why they chose it. The the pigs are in the, they're in the area of the Decapolis. That's where um, the area of the Gadareans is. The Decapolis were the ten Greek cities. 
so they're raising pigs because there are Gentiles over in the region of the Decapolis. And Jesus did go to the Decapolis. Jesus visited it. Uh, you can visit one of the cities of the Decapolis today. If you go to the region of the Galilee, you go to a place called Bet Shean, and um, it's a Roman city that's up on the Galilee. It's one of, it's one of the Decapolis. And the, the demons, remember they run to Jesus when he comes to the shore and say, what have, you know, they call him who he is. What have we to do with you? Are you to do with us? Oh, you know, I think they call him the Holy One. And um, Jesus talks to them and they say, we are legion for we are many. And then he ends up casting them out and allowing them to go uh, into the pigs. And then the pigs run off into the water. So why, if they want to go into the pigs, would the pigs run off into the water immediately if they are demon-possessed? Unless demon possession isn't as much control as we often think it is. It seems like they had complete control of the guy, but the pigs end up running into the water. So there ends up being a lot of questions uh, with this account. Um, Maybe these were being raised, maybe the pigs were being raised by Jewish people who were selling to the Decapolis. That's been suggested. And um, Jesus talked about demons wanting a dry place. And if you cast them out and you leave the house unswept, meaning you, Christ doesn't move in, the demons go out and get seven demons and brings them back in and the latter state of the guy is worse than the first state. So maybe they just wanted a body to possess. Um, and and you notice my maybe, maybe. Uh, there's no way to really know. Um, I don't think we can answer this 100%. All right, Jari, sorry about that. Sorry when we kind of leave questions still out there, but certainly I've thought about it before and um, I don't know that there is a lot of good questions there. All right. So uh, we have a, our second question today comes from Melissa. Melissa says, um, based off of previous Q&A and divorce, adultery committed during the marriage divorce is acceptable. What if they commit sexual immorality? Is divorce acceptable? Well, the term is sexual immorality. And the term in Matthew 18 is the Greek word, um, is the Greek word porneia, and a lot of times there's a false equivalent when we use a word. We'll say, we'll use porneia, we say we get the word pornography from it. And there's a false equivalent to that. Um, it's any kind of fornication. It's any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. So, yeah, you're, that's what you're asking. What is the uh, biblical definition of sexual immorality? Let me see if I can find this really quick. I won't take a long time to see if I can look it up, but I think it's in Matthew 18. And if it is, we can take a look at the, if I can find it quick enough here, uh, we can take a look at the Greek word. And if you know exactly where it's at, we're early enough in our Q&A that you might be able to go and find it uh, for me and uh, and put it in here so that we can, uh, we can look at it. Let's see, might be 19. Might be. Let me just take a look. I'm just going to spend a, a couple minutes. Okay, so I found it. So it's. Um, I'm going to go to. It's Matthew 19. I'm going to go to my uh, um, my Strong's app. If I can find out where that's at now. There it is. 
and then I'm going to go to Matthew 19, and we're going to read, I'm going to put this up on the screen, and we're going to read this together, and then we're going to go look at the Word. All right. Yeah. All right. So let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. All right. Let's see. So here we go. Um, and it came to pass, this is the King James, when Jesus had finished these sayings, they departed from the Galilee and came to the coast of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a great multitude followed him and he healed them. The Pharisee also came to him, testing him, saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any cause? He answered and said to them, oops, oops. He answered and said to them, have you not read <clears throat> that which um, made them at the beginning, made them male and female? And he said, for this cause, a man and a woman shall leave the father and mother and shall cleave to one uh, to his wife and the, the twine shall be one flesh. So that's God's plan for marriage, a man and a wife leaving, cleaving together, becoming one. That's why when you divorce, you cover your garment with violence because the two are separated again and it's violent. Uh, wherefore, they are no more twine, but one flesh. Um, what therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So this is where Jesus said not to divorce. Um, later on, in Corinthians, Paul says, if you do separate, then remain single or be, or be reconciled. So it could be that there are things going on like abuse, um, addictive behavior, that there needs to be a separation, but not for, for divorce sake, but for the sake of saying, I can't live like this, but you remain single. And this is what people don't want to do. They often don't want to do what God wants them to do. Um, so then it says, they said, and why did Moses command uh, to, in writing um, a writing of divorcement to put away? And Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, you, um, hearts suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So this is a concession on God's part in the law. And this is what we talk about when we talk about concessions. God didn't want them to get a divorce, but they were living in the world. They had a hardness of heart and God gave them a concession that they could put their wife away. And I say unto you, whoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication. Now there's a word that's translated sexual morality. So I am going to go click on the word fornication and it's gonna bring up the word. So there it is, pornea. Harlotry, including adultery, incest, um, figuratively, idolatry and fornication. So it's used to talk about spiritual fornication as well. So, including idolatry and incest, it's a, it's a broad word. I do remember that from doing a word study on this. So, it's a broad word on it. All right, so let's go back to your question here. Um, so, what does exactly does sexual immorality mean? So, that's what it means. Um, I often will get the question, if someone's looking at things that they shouldn't be looking at on a computer and they are not repentant from it, can I divorce them for that? At the very least, it is certainly grounds for separation. Uh, now, if they are repentant, there's a, a whole other issue. And you need to go and sit down and talk to someone if that's the case. And I've often said this, when, whenever you get into this topic, um, you need to sit down and talk to a pastor, sit down and talk to a, a, a good biblical counselor, 
or a friend who knows the Word of God well, that you can talk to them about your situation, um, and hopefully they will handle it properly. Um, I've been often in churches where they, I, I, we've had people in our church where the church has not handled it right. There's been physical abuse and the church made the woman stay in a physically abusive and they got mad at us when we told the woman to get out of there. So um, th it's pretty clear. Now, just because it says that she can, the person can divorce because sexual immorality doesn't mean they have to. And I've seen God take marriages that have gone through that, put them back together again, and let them be good, healthy, and strong um, relationships. And um, sometimes after they come to Christ, sometimes the, the affair was, was while at least one of them knew Christ, and, and then God reconciles the marriage. Um, I think a lot of us think when you're in a healthy marriage, you think if someone does, if my wife or husband did that to me, that'd be it. I'd be done. They'd be out of here. Um, but there are a lot of times it happens with marriages that aren't healthy, and it's not really easy to answer what you would do if something like that were happened because the marriage you thought you have, you did not really have. So I hope that that's helpful. Um, Melissa, if I didn't answer all that um, you were asking, uh, then go ahead and um, submit a follow-up, and we will take a look at it, all right? I'm going to get back to my Bible here before we go on and take our next question. So we have a question from Joe Crow. Joe, good to see you. Joe says, Acts 15.29 says, abstain from things strangled. Can you clarify what the context is referring to? Yes, I can. And there's something for us to learn here from this passage. Uh, it is often misread because oftentimes everything that we think that is in the Bible is, wait a minute, let's see where I was at, Acts 15, 29. Okay, so oftentimes we think that anything that's in the Bible that's said by anyone who's a Christian is uh, applies to us. But then we go back and read it again and we go, oh, it really doesn't apply to us. So this is a letter that the apostles are sending back to uh, those who are Gentiles that have had pressure from false teachers telling them they have to be circumcised, they have to keep the law, basically they've got to be Jewish. All right, Acts um, 15, 29. I'm just going to move this down here so I can kind of go back and forth here. Uh, so the apostles write them a letter telling them, well, let me, let me put this on screen. Let's read the whole, let's read the, the whole letter. Uh, it says, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are in of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. So these are Jews in Jerusalem that are the head of the church, James included here, Paul, Peter included here, Paul included here. And they are writing a letter to the Gentiles. So, and I don't think Paul would be on this letter, would have signed this letter. I think it would come from the leadership in Jerusalem. Since we have heard that some went out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to which we give you no such commandments. Now, I want you to notice this. It says, be circumcised and keep the law. We give you no such commandments. So no such commandments come from them that the Gentiles have to keep the law. So people today who say that people have to keep the law have this to fight against. They wrote them that they have no such commandments for them. It seemed good to us being assembled in one accord 
to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same thing by the word of mouth. Start sending a letter and they're going to go tell them. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, um, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. All right. So, it's important not to conflate what is written in the letter by the apostles to the, the Galatians, or, or to the Gentiles in their day, with what God would be saying to us. Again, they're living in a different culture. Not only are they in a different culture, but we're getting what they wrote here. So they may have felt strongly being Jewish. I mean, in, in Judaism, you can't eat blood. Uh, and this is one of the reasons, had they not believed, had this is one of the reasons that I say, had communion, Jesus been saying, this is my blood, and turned the, the grape juice into blood, then they would have been breaking the law. Bef before this passage, Peter says, nothing unclean has passed over my lips. He's taken communion with Jesus and other times. If that literally became blood, he'd be drinking blood and that would be against the law. So abstain from, from blood. Now, again, this is just what they wrote. It doesn't mean it's what God said to them. He, they do say it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit to stay away from these necessary things. But again, they're writing what they believe they should give them to do and things from things strangled. So if you strangle something, the blood remains in the meat. So to be kosher, you have to cut the throat, drain the blood, and then you can go ahead and eat it. So they're saying to, that you would stay refrained from things strangled. And for sexual morality, which of course we know is the one statement that they make here, um, which is the thing that later on Paul says, the very thing that, and take care of the poor, uh, which Paul says the very things we were willing to do. Um, so, later on, Paul will address the eating meat issue and say, if it's been sacrificed or he doesn't address the strangled, but if it's been, if it's been dedicated to an idol, then don't worry about it. Don't ask for conscience sake, for your own conscience sake. So, so that's what this is. It's a, in the Jewish law, you couldn't strangle it. They're passing that on to them, maybe to not be offensive to the Jews that are part of the church with the Gentiles. Maybe that's the issue. We're not told why, but we don't get any passage that tells us that we can't drink blood. Now, I don't know if you want to or not, but we can't eat things that are strangled. And because they wrote it to them, doesn't mean that it applies to us. And this is really important when you're, when you're reading God's Word. You're looking for who wrote it, when was it written, why is there a difference between what Paul says later on and what they write here? Because Paul felt differently than they felt, which means that one of them is closer to what God wanted than the other one. All we're getting here is what was in the letter not whether or not this letter is something that was from God, but we learn that they were not keeping them under the law, asked them to abstain from these things for whatever reason they wanted to them to abstain from those. So it is helpful for us as we come to God's word 
to, to ask the question, what's the context here? Was this written to us? Are we supposed to keep these things or not? All right. So thank you very much, uh, Joe, for your question. It's a good one. All right. Uh, we have a question from Psych Man. Psych Man, good to see you. Psych Man says, what would you think if you heard the temple had begun to be built and you can speak as to how long it might be between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation? Have not previously heard this addressed. Um, yeah, so most people are going to think, if I'm, if I'm reading what you're asking here correctly, Psych Man, most people are going to think that there is a gap between the rapture and the tribulation period. So that that the tribulation period period begins when the man of sin makes a peace treaty with many, Daniel chapter 9, 27. And we know that he wrote to the Thessalonians in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and said, don't be troubled that the day of has come upon you because the man of sin hasn't been revealed yet. It doesn't mean he has to come first, it means he has to be revealed. And so during the tribulation period, remember the, the seal is torn and the Antichrist runs forward. And so is there a gap between the time someone is resurrected and the time that, they're, that the tribulation period starts? Now in Matthew and in Luke chapter 17, it says that the day they went into the ark, as it was in the days of Noah, the day they went into the ark, that's the sudden destruction came upon them. And the day they took them out of Sodom and Gomorrah, sudden destruction came upon them. So some find no gap because of those passages. But what exactly were they saying in Luke chapter 17 would be like the days of Noah? There certainly are, are ways in which it won't be like the days of Noah and ways in which it will be. So he said, it will be as, as it was in the days of Noah. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage when the sudden destruction came upon them. When, when Noah was taken in the ark and when they were taken, um, and when Lot was taken out of the city and sudden destruction came. So I believe that there could be a gap between the rapture of the church, the gathering together to him, as it says in Second Thessalonians, and the beginning of the church. Um, it may not be much of a gap at all. It may be just a logistical thing. If I saw today that the temple was being rebuilt, so what would you think if you heard the temple began to be built? So if I heard that today, it would be very much like Israel entering into Jerusalem. Israel has Jerusalem control again. That happened in 1967. Before that, they were, it was under their control. It would be like another step going forward. I wouldn't think that we had to be in the tribulation period because the Antichrist doesn't defile it until the beginning of it. So we could see the, the temple being rebuilt. We might even see it completely rebuilt before the Antichrist comes on the scene, um, before we are caught up to be with the Lord. Um, and then you ask, and can you speak as to how long it might be between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation period? So I just did that. Um, a lot of people see gaps. I'm, I'm going to say most most like if you're going to read a Mark, Mark Hitchcock or Ed Henson, um, they're going to see a gap in it, and most do. And I, I probably think there is. Um, so, so yeah, and I and I have heard this addressed before. You, yeah, not previously heard it addressed. Um, 
uh, Billy Crones. I, I heard him talking about this not that long ago. Um, and um, as I said, some of the books by Mark Hitchcock and Ed Henson discuss this issue as well. And um, also along these lines, Psych Man, comes the idea of the Gog and Magog War, which I think we're seeing the coalition of that come together now. And so does that Gog and Magog War happen before the church is taken out or before the beginning of the tribulation period. All right. So thanks, Ike Man. I appreciate your question. Good to see you. Uh, we have a question from Hunter. Hunter says, question, uh, Nana passed away a couple of years ago. My mom prayed for a sign that my Nana can talk to her. She reached out to a lady who can talk to the dead. Yeah, that's not good. Um, I'm gonna, I, need, I, I would love to have a little bit more information here. Um, so she asked, she asked, she prayed for a sign. So I'm gonna take it that your mom is a Christian and she reaches out to a lady who says that she can talk to the dead. So this is something called necromancy and the Bible forbids it in the Old Testament that people claim they could talk to the dead. Today it would be called psychics who would claim that they can talk to the dead. And your mom is probably grieving severely and so she's trying to pursue this. Um, I would discourage her from doing that. Probably go to the Old Testament. Um, this is something that that um, soothsayers, astrologers in the Old Testament, um, uh, sorcerers would do. And so it's something that we stay away from. Uh, and besides that, she's being taken by these people who say they can talk to the dead. Because I, I, I think this is all fake. I, when, when Saul went to a gal who claimed she could talk to the dead in Endor, that's not the moon of Endor, but in Endor, she called Samuel from the dead and Samuel showed up and she immediately knew that she had been deceived and that it was Saul. Why? Because Samuel showed up. Because she's just taking advantage of people. They're, they're pretty good at asking questions, talking to them, being able to make their little statements about, you know, something that, that they, taking some guesses. They'll throw several statements out there. One of them will finally stick and then they'll go, then, then you leave feeling like, oh, they knew something about me. But, but the other things they said didn't stick. So, you know, if you ever watch how psychics do these, these things, they will start asking questions. I'm, I'm getting something from the other side about blonde hair. The person is like, no, blonde hair, maybe a cat. Mm. Nope, nope. Let's see, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a deep love, which of course the person wants to hear, right? I'm getting a deep love and um, a rose garden. Oh, my grandmother had a rose garden. Well, the cat didn't hit, the blonde hair didn't hit, but the rose garden did. And they're saying things that are along with it that, that they want to hear. So stay away from these, stay away from these kind of things. And I encourage your mom to stay away from it as well. She's just going to be taken advantage of by this person. And so, yeah, stay away from it. It's, it's not good. Um, I shared with you guys last week that I lost my wife in 2012 and there were several, she had gone downhill really fast in the end and I thought we would have much more time to deal with things and we didn't. 
and I can certainly understand the desire to talk with her. I, I certainly had conversations with Lisa, but I wasn't going to anybody because I thought that they could hear, and I, and I wasn't sure whether she could hear me or not because I don't know that we know that for sure. All right, so um, your mom's just probably grieving really badly, and she just needs to put her trust in God and not go to these people that's gonna take advantage of her, all right? So um, hopefully you could talk to her and take care of that. All right, thank you. Thank you for your question and sorry for your loss. I hope that the God of all comfort would comfort you and your mom as well. So we have a question from Matthew. Matthew Wilson says, question, hello, Pastor Robert. Do you believe the prodigal son had demonic faith? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, I, th I think what kind of faith did the the scribes and Pharisees have. They believed God, but they rejected the Messiah. And we also know that they're playing games, calling things Korban, full of hypocrisy, not doing the things that they're telling other people to do. They lay heavy burdens on people who won't lift them up with their one finger. So, yes, I would say that he believed, he believed in God, but he wasn't willing to trust in, in the Messiah and do the things that he had been called to do. And so, um, yeah, Jesus loved him. He went away sad. Yeah, I would say that that's, that that's the demonic faith, the demonic faith. You believe in God, but you're not living it, and you're not willing to live um, what's there. So I would say that that is the case. Thank you, Matthew. I appreciate that. So again, if you're visiting here with us for the first time, really glad to have you here. Uh, if you have a question, we'll take questions that have anything to do with the, the Christian faith and um, prophecy, Bible questions, um, misunderstandings, cults, uh, apologetics, difficult, hard questions from the Bible. Write the word Q in front of it or a question mark in front of it or question and then write out your question, reread it, make sure it makes sense. I love our format of being able to ask questions and then follow up afterwards. Um, but it takes, you know, when you write something out, it takes a couple times to, to get it edited the way that it really needs to be edited uh, to be able to um, ask your question, all right? So again, good to see you guys. And um, let's see. All right. Do we have another question? Question, all right. So Jari has a follow-up, all right? So Jari says, um, follow-up, did it mean you can't make two different types of animals together? Uh, did it mean you can't make two different kinds of animals together? And why couldn't they eat certain things? Leviticus confuses me a bit. All right, Jari, well, thank you. Um, I think that God had his reasons for why he chose what he chose. Um, obviously, you can take pork and go, if pork isn't taken care of well and cooked well, you can get really sick from it. So that God chose it to be unclean for that reason. But remember that it had to do with cloven hoofs and chewing the cud. So, um, I'm trying to think. I think a rabbit is unclean. A camel's clean. But I don't want to get camel. A lot of people, I guess, have eaten rabbits. I don't necessarily want to. Um, but it had to do with those kind of things. Um, God 
I think what God was doing with the diet and clothing was that there was unclean and clean and God was going to keep their distinction even though they were going to be dispersed throughout nations because by the law there were things that they couldn't eat, they, they couldn't mingle too much, they couldn't be assimilated into the cultures that they went to, they stayed distinct and different, the corners of their beards weren't to be shaved, they were to wear tassels um, on the four corners of their robes, today they'll wear them on the four corner, under the four corners of their shirts, so that you can see someone who was Jewish, they have their head covered all the time, the men have their head covered all the time, you can identify a Jewish male, uh, at least one that's religious pretty easily. The secular Jews just look a lot like Americans in Israel. Is it so you really talk to them and kind of hear their accent that you really see that? Um, but uh, God had his reasons for, I mean, you couldn't eat shellfish, so you couldn't eat shrimp. Um, the mixture of meat and cheese is only because the Bible says don't boil the calf in the mother's milk. So it's kind of like something you know, um, that lacks compassion if you use the mother's milk to boil a calf. And so they don't mix cheese because it might be from the mother, even though there's probably a long shot of that now. So that's, and boy, they their whole system is based on that. So you go into dairy restaurants, you go into meat restaurants, and you cannot take meat into a dairy restaurant. And, and I did that, again, unwittingly, unknowingly, the last time I was in Israel. My wife sat down and ordered a meal in a dairy restaurant. We were outside on a patio and I walked over and got a shawarma and brought it back and ate it there. And another guy just said something to me and I said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, yeah, I, I, I know that. And then it dawned on me that I was eating in a dairy restaurant. I was done, so I got up and threw everything away anyway. Um, but yeah, um, God gave the laws to, for cleanliness like they were to go back to the bathroom outside of the camp, they were to dig a hole. So there's a lot of things that God did which helped them health-wise, but also there's certain laws that don't make any sense that way. So not all of them can be explained with that's healthy. But God gave them certain things they could eat and certain things that they couldn't eat. And if you go back and read Leviticus, then you can see what it was. Um, but mating two different animals, remember, only if animals are closely related can they even mate. So, um, and I forget if it's a family, I think it's a family of animals that can mate. Species certainly can, family can. I'm trying to think of the breakdown there. But obviously you can't have mate, a dog, dog can't mate with a cat. Can't have a dog cat except in cartoons. And that's it. Uh, but you could have a tiger and a lion mate and when they do, you get a liger or a tigan, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. And I think it depends on which, who's the mom and dad there. But they grow larger than normal. They have giantism. And they grow larger than normal. And it's this, this breed between them. And it doesn't happen in the wild, generally. Um, but it happens in captivity. Um, so, um, follow-up, did you mean you can't mate two different types of animals? So I don't know what that question was from. Jari. Um, so, yeah, hopefully I was able to clear up some things about Leviticus and the law. Uh, we just have to cut. There's just certain things you come back and you trust God and you say, Lord, I know you were doing whatever you were doing. And sometimes I think we can get too, we try to get too cute with trying to find a reason for everything that God didn't have them eat 
And I think sooner or later, um, that's going to run into it. All right. Uh, so let's see. Look for another question here. Uh, Kimberly has a question. Kimberly Fox, Kim good to see you. Uh, says, when someone dies that you love so much and things are unanswered, I have a feeling a lot of people think any moment or sighting of a voice or a dream is, uh, is their loved one. Do we correct them? Uh, I think you got to be led by the Spirit, Kimberly. If they're saying something that for some reason would be unbiblical, you know, I mean, if someone tells me, if, if I'm, I'm going to see someone who lost someone and they tell me, the flowers bloom today. I know that's my wife telling me how much she loves me. I'm, I'm not going to correct them on that. I'm not going to go, those flowers are probably going to bloom anyway. And there's, there's nothing there. Um, I, you hear a lot of that because people really do grieve deeply and they're hurting and they're looking for anything. And um, if, the, if, if they find some comfort in believing that a flower blooming uh, the day after they die or a stray animal being found, is, is there, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at just trying to comfort them at that point. I'm not looking at trying to bring any kind of correction. I just want to be there with them. The Bible says, mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I always encourage when you're with someone who just lost somebody, just be there with them. You don't have to fill it with a lot of, a lot of noise. You don't have to quote a bunch of scriptures. There might be a, something you say that could be profound that would be from the scriptures. But the more you say, the more you quote scriptures, the less what you say is going to be remembered. The less you say is better. So it's better to make sure that you're just kind of led by the Spirit when you are. And um, no, I, I, there, there are a lot of times I don't see a reason to correct, to correct people even if they haven't lost someone. So if I'm talking with someone and they say something that's wrong biblically, I don't feel it's my place to be the one to always correct them, even as a pastor. I don't feel like I say, you know, you just said this and that's not biblically correct. I don't, I don't do that. First of all, I think it would be annoying to, to do that. Um, secondly, you just kind of allow people opportunities to be able to grow. Um, there, there could be certain behaviors. I think I'm trying to think of when I did correct someone, um, Kimberly. So um, I'm thinking when I was interacting with those who were from a Catholic family and there were some things that they were doing when they had died that were kind of superstitious. And because I knew that they had committed their lives to Christ, I just talked to them about that. So yeah, there, there is a time to talk to them, but you gotta be, again, you gotta be led by the spirit and you wanna really be there to be able to, um, to be able to encourage them and strengthen them. All right. So thank you very much. Um, hey, Nick is here. Um, Matthew, I'm going to come back to your question. Um, well, let's bring it in here. I think we've got, what do we got? We got time. Okay. I'm going to, I'll pick up Nick, your question here in a minute. This is a follow-up. 
on the subject of demonic faith. How much does religious cults play into this, if any at all? Um, so, if, if someone is a, so is a Mormon. Mormons believe in many gods. So, Elohim was a human who became a god. Jesus was a spirit baby that progressed to be gods. And there's other gods out there and you can progress to be God as well. So, that's not just like demonic faith. Demonic faith is, you know God's one. You know that God exists and you know who he is. But you're not following after him. So, I would say that Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, um, uh, other, other cults uh, would not fall into that category because they don't believe in the true and the, the real God. The God that they believe in is different than the true and the living God. Um, I would not call that demonic faith. I, I say, would say demonic faith is a, is a, can happen to a Christian who's going to a church and they're like, I believe in God, but they just don't live for him. They're living for themselves. And that's what demonic faith is. So I would not say that it's necessarily other religious cults. Um, it might apply in certain situations. Okay. Um, so um, hey, we got Nick. Uh, Nick Weiss. Nick uh, was on staff with us. Sent him out to Austin to start a church, fervent church. Good to see you, Nick. Good to have you here. When can you get out to Austin to teach? Well, just send me a text. Let's see if, if we can work that out. All right. I'd love to be able to uh, to do that. I'd love to get out there, um, yet, yet to get out and see the work that you guys are doing there. Praying for you, and um, love you. Hope things are going really well uh, for you. And uh, send me a text, and we'll work it out. All right. I'd love to be able. I'd love to be able to get out there. All right. So uh, I appreciate you and uh, the work you're doing. All right. So we have a, a follow up from Kimberly. Kimberly says, follow up, uh, it is years later and they are claiming the lights blink or similar. What do you do when these are Christians believing this? How many people truly believe their loved one is, uh, their loved one is uh, protection? Yeah, um, I, I think that this is kind of some odd stuff. Um, lights blinking. Yeah, I just think it's some odd stuff. Um, so it happened years ago, but your mom's got to be just grieving still to see blinking lights and think that's got to be, you know, that's got to be my, my mom that's talking to me. Um, yeah, I think that a lot of people believe their loved ones are protecting them. Something happens and they'll say, that was so-and-so protecting me. So I think a lot of people believe that. Personally though, Kimberly, I believe that they've gone up into the into the presence of God and they're moving on with whatever life is in heaven in the intermediate state. And we are here on earth living for the things on earth and we don't ever see these connections in heaven, I mean here on earth, between Stephen who died and James, the first apostle who died, and then anything that happened on earth being connected with them. So the Bible had opportunities to be able to do that, but didn't do it. So I would say we're looking at things that are not biblical. And even when we're talking about going to those who talk to the dead, that we're told in the Old Testament certainly don't do that. 
All right. And so um, it's um, kind of on that idea of psychic. So we have another question on that from Cecilia. Cecilia, you good to see you. Cecilia says, I don't believe psychics can physically talk to the dead, but what about who um, I, who deep in my sleep, see and talk to my dad and my mom, like really conversating seems so real. Do your loved ones really come to visit us in uh, in spirit? Thanks, Cecilia. I really appreciate your question. I don't believe so. I think we we want to have those relationships. Um, after my wife passed away, I had dreams where she was talking to me that I almost needed to to hear or to move on and maybe those dreams were from God and maybe God would allow someone to come and talk to you in a dream. Um, I would be hesitant to say that's from God. I would be skeptical about it, um, that it could be real. Sometimes those things can be such a gift, Cecilia, even if it's not your mom and dad talking to you because you are remembering and you're having a conversation with them in a dream and you wake up and it's like, what a good dream. I was talking to my mom or dad and, and it is a good dream without having to be from God. Um, but, you know, I mean, God does what God's going to do and, and doesn't ask us. And I, I just think we're warned against these kind of things and there's such an, um, the occult does these kind of things. And so I don't, see them happening in Christianity. Um, but I do think that those dreams can be a blessing. All right. So along those lines, a follow-up, are we not supposed to let them know that this is demons? You're talking about those that have demonic faith. Um, so it's not that the demons are involved in it. And if, I, if I'm following your follow-up question properly, it's the demonic faith is that you are like demons. Demons believe but they, they tremble even, but they don't fall, they're not living for Jesus. So when someone believes, maybe even trembles, has fear of God, but don't live for him, but, but when they believe in him, that's the demonic faith. Um, so are you asking about that? Or are you asking about follow-up? Let me see here. Oh, um, yeah, could, could it be in the spiritual realm? Could it be demons um, that some kind of a demonic activity? Um, yeah, I, uh, I would hesitate to say that, Kimberly. I would have to listen to each case. I'm not saying that it could never be the case, but I would have to listen to it and I would have to look at the fruit is of it. So um, if someone a year, two years later after losing someone is still talking about a bird that they see out back all the time that is their loved one, then I, I see some problems of not being able to to um, continue forward in their lives. I didn't say move on from their loved ones, but continue forward, which I think is really important that we do. Um, I think we can get stuck in grief. And that's my concern with the stuff we're talking about now, that people would get stuck in grief instead of, and we never move on from someone that we love that we lost. We love them. And, and if they're Christians, we believe we're gonna see them again. We are gonna see them again. And so it's good for us to kind of keep that in mind. But I think that we can get caught up in, we can get, get stuck in grief. And I will have conversations with people about not getting stuck in grief. 
but moving forward with their lives. All right. So we have a question from Facebook, and this is from uh, Timothy. Timothy says, Hi, Pastor Robert. People have told me that when their loved one died, some weird things happened uh, in the house, like things moving from uh, where they were, lights going on and off, etc. If that does happen, I think it would be more likely from an unsettled spirit than from a believer who went to be with the Lord. Do you, what do you think about this? I think that these kind of things are more in people's minds. That's what I think. I think that them seeing things move or, or you know, that it, it's a mind that is full of grief and sorrow. And I don't think that I'm really skeptical um, on these kind of things that something is moving around and there is there is demonic power um, that might be able to do these things but I don't I wouldn't say an unsettled spirit I don't yeah, I don't think that they can I don't think they're wandering around like that that's a different idea the Bible says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord so they're in the presence of God and when someone dies and they go to the grave they go to Sheol they go to the holding place they're not here. Remember when Jesus, um, when when Jesus talked about Abraham having the conversation with the man who was in Sheol, he said, "Send him to go and tell my brothers." He said he won't listen to me to somebody who comes back from the dead. So they weren't able to go back to them. So I think we can be pretty strong that when someone dies, that they are not able to go back to that person. Um, again, when I'm dealing with someone, though, I mean, you know, you don't have to always tell them what what you think. You, you, you could kind of just, you know, move along. All right. So, um, you know, that's actually in the Bible verse, for instance, the prayers for the saints. Um, uh, sorry, let me uh, go ahead and uh, I'm going to go ahead and put my do not disturb on. All right. Um, okay. So, uh, let's see, how did I get back? I got back here a little bit. All right, let me go on here and see what we've got. All right, so I'm at the end here <clears throat> of our questions. And um, so we had a lot of questions about um, loved ones sticking around and whether or not it could be them. Uh, and I, I just think that this is part of grieving that's happening. But it's been good to, to, to be with you guys, to spend this time with you. Um, I will look for some scriptures. Um, maybe we may very well start off talking about this um, from a more scriptural point of view um, instead of, you know, kind of like just, you know, what we're thinking now. But I really appreciate you guys. Uh, and stay close to Jesus. Walk in the, well, you know, the Bible says to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And we have the spirit that brought Jesus out of the grave at work within us. What a great statement. May you be spiritually minded. May you not be carnally minded. And may that lead to life and peace and all kinds of things uh, within your life. All right. Uh, we have a service in about an hour. Uh, we're going to be talking about, we're, we're, we're in Acts chapter 7, where we have the first martyr of the church. And we see Stephen sharing with the council about his, his charges of blasphemy. And he's going to talk about Moses and the law, specifically rejecting the law. 
um, that there were blasphemers of the law and what a real blasphemer of the law looks like and that he's not one of them. So you can join us. Uh, six o'clock, the service starts. The worship will start then. Uh, the teaching will be about 622, 623, right around there. All right. So God bless you guys. Love you. I am out. We will see you later on, uh, Lord willing, uh, this coming up Wednesday night. All right. Thank you, uh, Timothy. I appreciate you as well. All right. God bless you guys. We'll see you later on.